You're listening to a sermon preached at Chao English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have now to look at your Word. We pray that as we reflect on this last chapter of Jeremiah, that you'll help us to understand more of your faithfulness, that we might know you more, that we might love you more. For it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. We finally made it. We finally made it. Well done. After 16 weeks, after 52 long chapters, we finally arrived at the end of Jeremiah. Wow. It's a long book, right? Uh, In fact, I'll have you know, uh, in terms of the word count, this is the longest book in the Bible. It's even longer than the Psalms. It's a very long book. And really, from start through to the finish, it's been pretty much the same message, right? I mean, uh, come back with me all the way back to chapter one. Uh, Keep your finger there in chapter 52, but flip back with me to chapter one, because I want to look at this with you. Uh, In chapter one, and I want us to look together at verse 11 to 16, uh, but come back with me to chapter one, just to put things in context. In chapter one, by the way, uh, verse 11, God is saying that he is watching, remember? He says he's watching them. He's watching to make sure that his word will be fulfilled. God says that he will do what he says he will do. And what's he going to do? He says he's going to judge and destroy his people, the Jews. The Jews have been sinful. They've been idolatrous. And so people from the north, that is the Babylonians, they want to come down and destroy them. So look with me at chapter 1, verse 11 to 16. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. Now, remember the word for almond tree is the same word in Hebrew for watch. So in Hebrew, it's the watching tree. Verse 12, the Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will proclaim my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshipping what their hands have made. That's where we started. That's where we started. There's been no surprises in this book. And that's been really the theme for the whole book of Jeremiah, right? For the vast majority of Jeremiah, that's been the theme. For 40 years of Jeremiah's ministry, right through the reigns of King Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, the Korean one, Jehoiachin, the Chinese one, Zedekiah, all the bad eggs. For 40 years of Jeremiah's ministry, it's been the same message. What's the message? Stop your rebellion. Stop disobeying God. Stop worshipping idols because God's judgment is coming. Babylon is going to come and defeat and destroy you. That's been the message. One week, 
somewhere in the middle of our Jeremiah series, someone at church, one of you, you came to me after service uh, and you said to me, going through Jeremiah is a little bit like driving through Outback Australia. In one sense, it's all the same. It's all red dirt pretty much everywhere you look. But it's interesting because if you drive through and if you look closely, wherever you are, you'll see lots of unique elements, lots of variations on the theme. And I reckon you're right. I reckon that's a great illustration. I think that's really accurate. Jeremiah has, indeed, been lots of the red dirt of judgment, but with constantly different, unique variations on that theme, different aspects. Well, now, as we come into the last chapter of this book, we get an epilogue. We get an epilogue. We get a historical note. That's what the last chapter is. We get a historical note. Uh, These are not the words of Jeremiah anymore. The words of Jeremiah ended with the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 51. You can see it there. That's That's the last thing chapter 51 says. Now, the editor of the book, the person who's compiling all this together for us, the editor of the book, he's reporting what happened in history. That's what chapter 52 is all about. It's an epilogue. It's a historical epilogue. The editor is writing for us everything that's happened in history. In other words, chapter 52, the editor is reporting to us how everything Jeremiah said came true. That's the purpose of chapter 52. The editor, he tells a story of the destruction of Jerusalem. So first, we focus on King Zedekiah. You might remember Zedekiah rebelled against God He also rebelled against the king of Babylon, and you'll remember that he faced the the terrible and the horrific judgment of God. Look with me now at chapter 52, and I'm going to read from verse 1 to 11. Chapter 52, verse 1 to 11. Follow along with me as I read these 11 verses. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamatal, daughter of Jeremiah, a different Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, so that's about 18 months of siege, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he put him in prison till the day of his death. Now, I know that we saw this uh, story a few weeks ago, but I can't think of a worse judgment. Can you? This is pretty bad, right? To have your own children slaughtered before your eyes? 
and that's the last thing you ever see before your eyes are taken out? What is this? This is God's judgment on King Zedekiah. Next. Next we see God's judgment on the city of Jerusalem and on the temple. On the city and on the temple. The city and the temple are systematically destroyed, systematically taken apart. They are plundered, they are burned to the ground, and the majority of the few survivors are then taken off into exile. Look with me at verse 12 to 23. Chapter 52, verse 12 to 23. On the 10th day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burnt down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But Nebuzaradan left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. And now we see what they did to the temple. Look at this. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried all the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the basins, censers, sprinkling bowls, pots, lampstands, dishes, and bowls used for drink offerings, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea, and the 12 bronze bulls under it the movable stands, which King Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord, was more than could be weighed. Each pillar was 18 cubits high and 12 cubits in circumference. Each was four fingers thick and hollow. The bronze capital on top of one pillar was five cubits high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar, with its pomegranates, was similar. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. The total number of pomegranates above the surrounding network was a hundred. This great, magnificent building built to the glory of God, destroyed, torn apart, plundered, and taken off to Babylon. So what can we see? God's judgment on the king, God's judgment on the city, his judgment on the temple. In the next section, we focus on God's judgment on the people, on the people. Of those who have been captured, many are executed, killed. There's only a few survivors that are taken off into exile. And just have a look at these numbers here because it really is only a few people left. Uh, it's, it's remarkable, it's crazy. I mean, even if we were only counting adult men, the reality is the Jewish people have been utterly decimated utterly wiped out. Think about it, historically. I mean, it was millions, right? It was millions that came out of Egypt and went into Israel, but now look how many are left. Look with me at verse 24 to 30. Verse 24 to 30. The commander of the guard took as prisoners Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and seven royal advisors. 
He also took the secretary who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land, 60 of whom were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity, away from her land. This is the number of the people Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile. In the seventh year, by the way, the seventh year is actually before what we're reading about now. This is back in the year 597 BC when Jehoiachin is taken into exile. So 597 BC, in the seventh year, look there, how many? 3,023 Jews. Then in Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year, and that's currently the story we're reading about at the moment, 832 people from Jerusalem. And in his 23rd year, and this is a later attack on Jerusalem that we know nothing about, 745 Jews taken into exile by Nebuzaradan, the commander of the Imperial Guard, there were 4,600 people in all. That's not many people, is it? I mean, even if we're only counting the adult men, this is what, 10,000, 15,000 people max? Everyone else dead. Everyone else slaughtered. The Jews have been pretty much wiped out. Hitler was not the first to try it, and Nebuchadnezzar nearly succeeded. This is wild. In the very last section, we focus on Judah's previous king, the man who had been taken into exile back in the first attack in 597 BC, the man who had been replaced by Zedekiah. This king is named Jehoiachin. After a while, Jehoiachin receives some favorable treatment at the hands of the king of Babylon. He's a prisoner, he's in exile, he's in a foreign land, but at least he's well looked after, like some kind of a pet dog. Look with me at verse 31 to 34. 31 to 34. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Arwell Marduk became king of Babylon, on the 25th day of the 12th month, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. And that's it. That's where the book of Jeremiah ends. But can you see what's here in the final chapter? Can you see what's here in chapter 52? I'll give you a quick summary. God's terrible judgment has come. After 40 years, after 52 chapters, what Jeremiah said has come to pass. In other words, God has indeed kept watch over his word. God has done what he warned he would do. God has done what he promised he would do. King Zedekiah, the city, the temple, the people, King Jehoiachin, all of them have faced the terrible judgment of God, the horrific judgment of God. It's very dark, isn't it? It's very, very dark. The Jews have been practically wiped out. Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple's been torn down. The reign of the line of King David ended. Friends, this is a tragic, tragic, it's a tragic finish. 
And yet, if you think carefully about it, it's not all bad news. In fact, let me give you two reasons why, paradoxically, this ending is good news. Two reasons why this ending shouldn't just make us sad. Two reasons why this ending should actually make us hopeful. Two reasons why this ending fills us with hope. The first reason is this. God keeps his word of judgment. That's what we see in chapter 52, right? God keeps his word of judgment. When God promises he will judge, he does judge. He's not flaky. There's integrity in this God. He's faithful to his word. It might take a long time, yes. It might take a very, very long time, especially if you're preaching the same message for 40 years, but it will happen. It's going to happen. Parents, I wonder if you can relate to this. Um, Just imagine with me for a moment. Let me illustrate. Imagine with me a random dad, a hopeless parent who makes threats but doesn't follow through, okay? Picture the scene. Imagine a family in the car, four kids in the back, dad's driving, and the four kids are all fighting and screaming in the back. It's loud and it's crazy and it's chaotic back there, but there's nothing the dad can do. Why? Because he's driving. All the dad can do is speak. That's all he has. He can't physically separate them. He can't send them off to their different bedrooms. He can't do anything. All he can do is speak. So imagine the dad while he's driving. Imagine he invents some kind of terrible punishment and threatens them with it. The dad says something like this. You kids, if you don't stop fighting, when we get home, I will surgically remove the parts of your brain that make you fight all the time. I'll do it without anesthetic. I'll put them in a soup and I'll make you drink it. Now, of course, they don't stop fighting. So they get home and the kids say, all right, dad, surgery time. Get your scalpel. All four of us are here. Now, as much as the dad would like to carry out the threat as much as he sees the, the right sense in doing what he said. He really can't do it, right? So he says to the kids, yeah, ha-ha, go and clean your room. Stop fighting before I think of something worse to do to you. Now, there's a number of problems with that disciplinary method. First, it doesn't change their behavior. It doesn't fix the problem. They keep on fighting because they know that their dad's threats are empty. And second, it just encourages them to disrespect their dad. Like that dad is someone who can't be trusted to keep his word. God is not like that dad. God is a father who does not make idle threats. Jeremiah 52 is abundant evidence of that. This God, he does not make idle threats. What does it say? It says God is watching to see that his word will be fulfilled. That's what he says. If he says it, he will do it. He is faithful to keep his word of judgment. And you know what? I think we can see this very clearly in the New Testament just as we can in the Old. In fact, in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy, you'll find a little poem It's a bit random, but not really. There's a bit of a poem in 2 Timothy. Actually, it's pretty important. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. That's page 964 of the church Bibles, 964. But turn with me to 2 Timothy. It's right at the end of the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2 because I reckon this poem is really interesting. It's interesting because it doesn't mean what you might think it means at first. This poem, as you can see, it comes in four parts. The first two parts are positive. They say, if you keep trusting in Jesus, you will live and reign with him forever. And then the third part is negative. It says, if you give up on Jesus, you'll be in trouble. But have a look at this and ask yourself this question. What about the fourth part? Is it positive or is it negative? Look with me in your Bibles or on the screens at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. Here we go. Here is a trustworthy saying. The first part, if we died with him, that is, if we're trusting in Jesus, his death is our death. If we died with him, we will also live with him. The second part, if we endure, as in if we keep relying on Jesus till the end, if we endure, we will also reign with him. The third part, now we get negative. If we disown him, he will also disown us. And now the fourth part. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. What do you reckon that means? If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. From a quick surface reading, it sounds positive, doesn't it? It sounds like God will still love us. But if you look at how this poem works, two parts and two parts, and if you compare it with the rest of the New Testament, it becomes really clear. The fourth part, it's actually not positive at all. At least it's not positive for those who are faithless, for those who stop trusting in Jesus. If we are faithless, God cannot discern himself. In other words, God will not go back on his word. The God of the Bible is not going to expose himself to such disrespect like a dad does when he makes idle threats. God has promised, if you are faithless, if you will not trust in Jesus, he will judge you. And so if you are faithless, he will faithfully fulfill his word and do what he threatens, and you will be judged. Brothers and sisters, God has not changed since the time of Jeremiah. God keeps his word of judgment. This is very bad news for those who refuse to trust in Jesus. But there's also a sense in which this is good news. It's good news that God keeps his word of judgment. Why? Because it means that evil and injustice will come to an end. There's a finality to it. Evil will not go on forever. Unlike that dad's idle threats, which change nothing, God's judgment will transform creation. It will change everything. God's judgment means that all the terrible things that we see around us today, all the terrible things that come as a result of human sin and injustice and greed, they will not be around forever. That's the promise of the Bible. Every injustice will be fixed. Every wrong will be righted. There will be a new heaven and a new earth with no sin, 
with no suffering, with no injustice, with no death, with no mourning, with no tears, with no pain. Why? Because God is not a faithless parent like that dad. Because this God will keep his promise to judge and destroy all evil, just like he did in Jeremiah's day. God keeps his word of judgment. I'm someone who is tempted every day to give in to practical atheism. Every single day, the biggest temptation for me is to live my life as if God isn't real, as if God doesn't exist. I am so flaky that if you really knew what I was like, it'd be embarrassing. I would melt. My faith, garbage. It's so weak on my best of days. Too often, I question the existence of God and I question whether it's worth giving my life for him and for his purposes. But friends, when I look at what Jeremiah 52 says, when I see the faithfulness of this God, when I see that this is a God who can be trusted, who is dependable, who can never break his word, that gives me confidence. I can trust in a God like that. I can give my life to a God like that. I can live for a God like that who will never lie who will never not deliver on his promises. This is a God who keeps his word of judgment. This gives such credibility to who he is, his character, his nature. This is a God who can be trusted. That's the first reason why this ending is good news, because God keeps his word of judgment. Second reason. The second reason why this ending is good news, there's another reason why we can be filled with hope because of the way Jeremiah finishes his book. You see, this God who keeps his promises, he hasn't only promised judgment, has he? In Jeremiah, God has also made good promises to his people, promises of salvation, right? We've seen that. And this God who keeps his word will also keep his word of salvation. He is dependable. He is trustworthy. Here in chapter 52, we just get glimpses of it, right? those few survivors, they're very few, but they're there. Jehoiachin, just just that, that glimpse of kindness toward him, it all looks very small, it all looks pretty hopeless on the surface, but not if you've read through all of Jeremiah. Because if you've read through the whole of Jeremiah, you will know that God has plans for these people. Plans, as the famous verse goes, plans to prosper them and not to harm them, plans to give them a new hope, a new future, and most important of all, plans to make a new covenant with them, a covenant in which he'll forgive them, a covenant in which he will give them new hearts so that they can be his people, so that they'll never again have to endure this kind of devastation and destruction so that Jerusalem will never again have to be cast out of God's presence forever. God's people will be able to be with him forever. Look with me at this passage from Jeremiah 31 on the screens. Look at this amazing promise of the new covenant. Look at this. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Friends, God was watching to see that his word of judgment would be fulfilled. And this same faithful God is watching to ensure that his promises of salvation are fulfilled. And of course, it all happens in Jesus, doesn't it? As Christians, we know that. God has fulfilled and is fulfilling his promises through Jesus Christ. Jesus came from that line of 4,600 survivors. Jesus came from that line of the very few survivors. And when Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, he made it possible for God the Father to establish the new covenant he promised back in Jeremiah. He said it at the Last Supper, didn't he? Do you remember what he said? He said what? This is a new covenant, what? In my blood. That's what he said. This is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus has poured out God's Holy Spirit who brings us forgiveness, who has begun the work of transforming our hearts and the day's gonna come when Jesus returns, when the Holy Spirit will raise our bodies to life, when he will fully and finally transform our hearts and when we will be changed into the sort of people who can live in the presence of God forever. As the Bible says, and try not to break into Handel's Messiah as you hear this, as the Bible says, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. We will be changed. Those are big, big promises. And if you're a struggler like I am, that is a word of life. That is encouraging to say the least. In fact, these are such big promises that maybe you're sitting here today and you might think to yourself, it all sounds too good to be true. But like in Jeremiah, let me say, God is watching. Like it says in that poem from 2 Timothy, if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. God keeps his word of salvation. And you know what? The day is going to come. The day is going to come when some editor puts a footnote on the history of the world. Not to tell the story of destruction like in Jeremiah 52, but to tell the story of God dwelling with his transformed people in a new Jerusalem that will never fall, that will never fade away. In fact, if you think about it, God's already told us a story, hasn't he? Look with me at your Bibles to Revelation 21. Turn with me there to Revelation 21, page 1004 of the church Bibles. It's right at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. And as you turn there, know this. If you belong to Jesus, here is a historical footnote to your eternity. Here is a historical footnote to your eternity. 
Chapter 21, verse 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Too good to be true? No way. These words are trustworthy and true. God keeps his word of judgment. God keeps his word of salvation. That is terrible for God's enemies, but for those of us who are in Christ, God's friends, this is our eternal hope, isn't it? This is our Christian hope. This is our key to a happy ending. All glory be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, our gracious, holy, faithful, trustworthy Father, we thank and praise you because you do what you say. Lord, we acknowledge that you are a God who does judge and will judge, and we thank and praise you for that. But Lord, we also want to especially thank you and praise you that you're a God who saves. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ who has borne the judgment that we deserve for us. Thank you that he is now alive and that those who have died with him will live with him, that those who endure will reign with him. Lord, we thank you for your magnificent promises. We long for the day when Jesus returns when you raise us to life, forgiven, cleansed, transformed, so that we can live with you forever. Father, bring on that day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.